Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Scientists agree that in order to slow global warming, we need to cut carbon emissions. But the transportation sector, the highest emitter in the U.S., has not successfully cut back. Now a regional cap-and-trade initiative could change that in the Northeast. It's a policy that is meant to put itself out of business over time. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll talk about that initiative and look at efforts to cut emissions elsewhere. And we'll look at the debate about a potential solution, burning wood for energy. It raises concerns about keeping forests sustainable and about particulate matter in people's lungs. And also I think some people were generally wondering, is this really a renewable source of energy? Plus, 400 years after the first slaves were brought to the United States, a jazz composer maps the history of African-American music. I'm writing for my ancestors' experience. I'm writing for my, my own personal experience as well. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Annie Ropeek, reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio, and I'm your host today. Thanks for joining us. Electricity, heat, and transportation are collectively responsible for nearly 60 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. That's according to the Environmental Protection Agency. Scientists and many policymakers agree to slow the pace of global warming and prevent its most catastrophic effects, the energy and transportation sectors will have to undergo a major transformation. Today, we'll look at how they're adapting so far. But first, we're going to talk to Leslie Ann Dupini-Giroux about the state of climate change in New England. She's a professor at the University of Vermont and is the state's climatologist, and she was one of the lead authors last year on the federal government's fourth national climate assessment. Leslie Ann, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me, Annie. It's great to be on. So based on the most recent climate assessment that came out last year, what communities in New England would you say are currently being impacted the most by climate change? I think everybody across New England is is facing some element or some impacts uh, related to climate change, whether you live in the rural parts of the Northeast or if you live in the coastal areas or the more urbanized um, regions. The the impacts are going to be different, but they're they're there nonetheless. Um, I think it's a question of not just the changes in in the the precipitation that we receive, the timing of it, the the, the large events, the the, the changes in the the, the temperature regimes, the the shifts in in the seas and the transitions between the seasons. But also, if you live along the coast, you're also seeing the impacts of sea level rise, for example, and, and how those change the, the, the tidal flows that we are seeing and, and the, 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 then the additional impacts that we see in, in the more open parts of the ocean as well. So I think it's, it's pretty much everybody, but the impacts are just going to be a little bit different depending on where you live. 
Yeah. And so you mentioned seasons. Let's talk a little more about that. Uh, One of the things the climate assessment focuses on in the Northeast was how the climate will impact our four distinct seasons and sort of reshape their timing and how they interplay with each other. So apart from the shorter snow season, which we know will affect our multi-billion dollar winter recreation industry in this region, uh, how have changes to the seasons impacted the economy in New England or will they impact it? So the changes in the seasons, I think one place that we will see and probably already seeing um, some of those impacts are going to be in the agricultural sector and and the forestry sector, for example, Um, with the the growing season length changing. um, A lot of people always ask me, just because we have a longer growing season or warmer temperatures, isn't that a good thing? Uh, The thing that we have to remember, though, is that um, having warmer conditions isn't always a, a good thing from a plant perspective, because if we don't have the Uh, moisture being received at the correct time during the growing season, we may run the risk of having um, additional droughts, whether they're droughts in the warm season or droughts in in the cool season. And so that's one piece that we have to look at. Um, We also, when we have a longer growing season, run the risk of having the influence of different types of of, of pests and, and, and ticks and so forth. And so longer growing seasons don't necessarily equate to um, superb increases in, in productivity from, from that perspective. Sure. And then on the ocean front, uh, we've talked about the negative effects of warming oceans and rising sea levels on this show in the past. Uh, and we've also talked about how infrastructure and fisheries and fishing industries will have to adapt to survive as that ocean warms. What's an effect in that realm of things that you think um, doesn't get enough attention? You know, it could be one of those positive impacts or a negative impact of warming and acidifying oceans. So I think our oceans are particularly vulnerable from a number of of perspectives. Part of it is because a lot of the the changes in the ocean are occurring faster here in the northeast, just off the northeast coast than anywhere else in the contiguous U.S. And so that's a cause for us to actually pay a little bit closer attention to the species that we are dependent on from an um, economic perspective, but also from a a cultural perspective and from a, a sort of livelihood perspective as well. How are the impacts of climate change different um, if you're in a rural part of New England or one of our urban centers? In, in our urban regions, one of the big things that we pay attention to is the age of the infrastructure and the, the adaptive measures that we can um, put in place to actually mitigate against some of the impacts of, of climate change. In, in the rural parts of our, um, of our region, we're, we're more concerned about our, our vulnerable populations, uh, our, our forestry, and how those are changing or how they're being um, affected by our changing climate. And again, because of, of the... Um, agricultural parts of our, our landscape. We're also looking to see uh, what are some of the impacts and, and how they sort of play out on the landscape. Do you think there is one particular place in New England that's most at risk from climate change? Um, I would probably say we all need to be closely paying attention because our risks are different and our impacts are different. And so I think it would behoove us not to think that none of us is... Um, isolated or not vulnerable. Professor Leslie-Anne Dupini-Giroux is the state climatologist for Vermont and was one of the lead authors on the fourth National Climate Assessment. Leslie-Anne, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Annie. The transportation sector is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the United States. The EPA says nearly a third of all emissions come from transportation, especially light-duty cars and trucks. And it isn't going down. Even as other sectors like energy generation shrink their carbon footprint, 
The EPA says transportation emissions have actually grown 22 percent between 1990 and 2017. Altering the behavior of individual drivers and a huge network of fuel companies may be a bigger challenge than regulating the energy market. But some people are making changes to how they get around. I'm David Waters, and I'm standing next to my Honda Clarity Touring version, a hybrid electric plug-in vehicle. David Waters is a state senator in New Hampshire working on the state's plan to build high-speed electric vehicle chargers on major roads. He bought his own hybrid EV last year. It can go 40 or 50 miles on just electricity and gets at least that much per gallon when also using gas. I tagged along with Senator Waters on his hour commute home across snowy New Hampshire to learn more about driving an EV in New England. So we'll head out and off to Dolby. Oh, well, listen to that. I, th- I thought you hadn't turned the car on yet. Yeah. So tell me more about why you chose to make the switch to this car. You know, I wanted for all the reasons, the quiet, the performance, um, and also the environmental issues were important to me. And I mean, after all, I'm you know putting all these bills and chairing a commission on electric vehicles. I, I knew I was going to get one at some point. There's different models out now, two years later. And um, I would, I think I would definitely buy an all-electric now. Because once a car has about 250-mile range, you're good. Okay. You know, I mean, I, I just, when do I ever drive that far? And if I did, uh, I'd be making a stop somewhere and charging it up. I was really interested reading the state report on sort of what an EV charging system should look like and kind of its potential commercial opportunities that people don't just pop in and pop out to the gas station, but they actually need something to do for like 20 minutes minimum and maybe longer. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what are some of those opportunities? I mean, I think tourism is the big thing for us. That We want people who have electric vehicles to feel that if they come to New Hampshire, they're going to be able to, to charge. I think we're going to see more private developments. I mean, ski areas are thinking they ought to have some chargers, um, hotels. And most people are going to be charging their cars at home. I think that's still pretty clear. But um, if people see chargers, it's psychologically, they'll say, oh, I can get one of these cars. And so, I mean, you have a little gas tank. I mean, you don't need to be all EV right now, technically. So why, like, is it sort of beneficial to introduce that? I'm saving at least a dollar, maybe a dollar and a quarter a gallon when it's on electricity. And it's not emitting any, there's no emissions. Does that feel good to drive a a non-gas car? Well, uh, I mean, you know, as a Yankee, I was very, very cautious of feeling self-righteous. But uh, I mean, bottom line for me, these are great cars. They're just great cars. Uh, they're better. They're better than a gas-powered uh, car, I think, in terms of the performance, function, ride, and so forth. Um, but you know, we probably the largest polluting thing that we do over our lifetime is drive a car, right? And I think you know, within a, within a, there's still a premium to these cars. Um, but the S, there was a recent study by Bloomberg. Um, that said that, you know, it used to be they thought about six to seven years before the price differential was gone. And now the Bloomberg report that came out last spring said, no, three years, the price differential will be gone. So at that point, um, they don't cost anymore. Senator David Waters, thanks so much for driving with me. Oh, thank you. It's been good to share my car.
On the same day as I spoke with New Hampshire State Senator David Waters, we talked to Heather Brandon during her morning commute to work. Heather is the digital news editor at New England Public Radio. She used to drive from her home in Hartford, Connecticut, to Springfield, Massachusetts. It would take her anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, depending on traffic. But this summer, she committed to taking the train. I'm on the train platform. The platform I am on is empty, except for me and a bunch of birds. They're taking refuge under this roof. Hello. Thank you. Just got on the train. After Heather got settled on the train, producer Morgan Springer talked to her about the commute. Why take the train instead of drive? Um, well, I think there might be a cost savings. I've been telling myself there isn't one because the upfront cost or like what you pay out out of pocket regularly feels like more. But I think over the long run, it actually is a savings. And then um, there's my mental health um, and my physical health, like sitting in a car for long periods and feeling aggravated, like almost the entire time is not healthy for me. And, um, And when the traffic is bad and there's unexpected delays or there's an accident, it can be really irksome and stressful. And I like having the time to kind of unwind a little bit, um, stare out the window, do something, whatever it is, whether it's work or um, talking on the phone or writing something. I can take the time to reflect or be productive on the train, and that's a lot more meaningful to me. Do you feel like it has helped your mental health? Yes. And I will say, too, that I'd like to be one less car on the road. I mean, I think, like, if we're going to make a shift as a society away from car dependency, which might need to be our future. Um, It happens one person at a time, so like this is my own personal experiment. I could go on, I think I have a lot more reasons. (laughs) Yeah, so okay, you mentioned that um, you thought you were losing money by taking the train, but maybe it it doesn't actually work out that way. So what's the breakdown, like how much does it cost for a monthly pass, et cetera? I was putting together some numbers. So monthly pass, which I think saves me money, is around 125 a month. It, it fluctuates a little bit. I'm not sure why. If I take the train five days a week up and back, that works out to about 625 a day. Um, and then currently I'm driving to the station and paying to park, which is $95 a month where I'm parking. That feels like a lot. You know, a lot of people might balk at that. Um, compared to the car, so... I figured this out based on uh, looking at federal mileage rate, um, which is 58 cents a mile right now. If I'm driving the car five days a week for, say, 48 weeks, so you count for vacations or something, it works out to about 162.50 a week. Um, so per month, that would be $650 a month. Wow. So that federal mileage rate considers a lot of things like wear and tear, um, gas. I might be saving around $100 a month by taking the train. That's my math. That's amazing. So because you had thought, you know, I'm not saving money by taking the train, did it feel good to actually sit down and do the numbers and say, okay, not only does this help my mental health, but I'm actually making a sound financial decision? Yeah, totally. Yeah, that feels really good. And it makes me feel less terrible about paying for parking per month. 
Heather, thank you so much for talking and uh, safe travels. Thank you and same to you. Take care. That was producer Morgan Springer speaking with Heather Brandon, digital news editor for New England Public Radio. This is my stop, Springfield. Just getting off the train. It's kind of loud. Coming up, it may be hard to cut transportation emissions, but a group of states in the Northeast is working on a solution. Plus, biomass, a wood-fired alternative to fossil fuels that's stirring controversy in northern New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. This month, a group of states in the Northeast will put out a plan to reduce carbon emissions from their biggest source in the region, the transportation sector. Some say the idea is a regional gas tax. Others call it cap-and-trade for cars. So what exactly is this initiative and what's so challenging about the problem it's trying to solve? With me to talk more are two reporters. John Dillon covers the environment for Vermont Public Radio. John, welcome to Next. Hello. And Zeninjor Nwameka is a reporter for WBUR in Boston. Zeninjor, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's talk about the problem first. Zeninjor, how much of our emissions actually come from transportation? And and what do we mean when we say transportation? Yeah, so a huge chunk of our emissions come from transportation. In in Massachusetts, transportation accounts for about 40 percent of emissions, and it's about the same for the region. It's really the largest share of any sector. And so we're talking about vehicles, we're talking about transportation infrastructure, anything transportation transit related. Um, And and what's also interesting with transportation is that it's it's really the only sector where emissions have continued to grow over time. Um, According to state officials here, we've seen emissions reduced in other sectors, but transportation has been uh, a big challenge. Yeah. And so why do we think that is, John? I mean, I know in New Hampshire, we've lowered our emissions from energy generation quite a bit more over the years than transportation, which has remained roughly flat. So why is it such a tough nut to crack? Oh, for a number of reasons. First, it, transportation, as as you know, it's not regulated like electric utilities are And then secondly, um, there's not a clear point source, right? There's millions of point sources and zooming around the region, often driven by single, you know, willful humans. Um, And so how do you regulate them? And then there's um, many, many more uh, entities to potentially regulate that actually supply the fuel to those millions of people driving. One reason um, that our transportation emissions are particularly problematic in Vermont is what we drive. In Vermont, the most popular car isn't a car. It's an SUV or a truck. Yeah. So the region has come up now with this tentative solution. It's called TCI, the Transportation and Climate Initiative. Zeninger, tell us who's involved and what this might do. 
Yeah, so so TCI is an effort. It's several states um, that are working together to reduce carbon pollution from transportation. It includes the New England states and, and several others in the Northeast. The, the key policy focus with TCI is a cap and invest program. Uh, the goal would be to drive down emissions from vehicles in particular and transition to a low carbon transportation system. So it would work like this. There would be a cap on emissions and fuel suppliers who transport across state lines will hold and trade those emission allowances based on that cap level. Um, A lot of advocates I've spoken to say that this type of policy would create an economic and business incentive to import cleaner fuels. Here's Chris Dempsey, the director of the advocacy group Transportation for Massachusetts. It's a policy that is meant to put itself out of business over time. It is intentionally meant to reduce emissions, and as those emissions are reduced, the demand for those permits should be reduced also until we move to a much more electrified and decarbonized transportation system. And so we've heard some people call this framework cap and trade, like you mentioned. We've also heard it called a gas tax. Um, John, what do you make of those comparisons? (laughs) I think it's a little bit of both. Um, It is cap and trade or cap and invest uh, for sure. Um, And the, the advantage of that over a straight gas tax is that you you leverage the money back into the system to get more efficient transportation. That's the, that's the whole idea. Um, but there will be a, a, a cap on these, these allowances, and, and people will have to buy the allowances. So there's huge questions about how many, what entities actually have to buy it. But then secondly, and where it becomes sort of tax-like, is how the cost of those allowances are passed on to the ultimate consumer. Um, so, you know, it may not be a tax like a excise tax that you pay currently on gasoline, but there will be an additional cost added to fuel somewhere along the chain. And the fuel dealers um, that I've talked to in Vermont, they estimate that, you know, it could have an impact of 5 to 18 cents at the pump. So while it may not be a tax per se, the impact could be very similar. And now that's sort of a decision that would be left to the distributors, right? If they are the targets of this, it's up to them to decide how to absorb that additional cost, whether to pass it on to consumers, to their gas stations, you know, and then the gas stations decide whether to pass it on to their consumers. Is the TCI framework going to try to speak to any of that to limit impacts to customers at the pump? Or is that still an open question? I think that's still an open question. I I don't think it's going to get that granular, at least in this next round coming up, about how it actually gets passed through. I think that will be left up to the individual entities. You know, if people, if if the wholesalers are paying more for fuel, it it stands to reason that they're not going to just absorb all that. They'll have to pass some of it along to consumers. And so that gets us to this question of of equitable impacts and kind of almost the environmental justice of implementing this policy. Uh, Zeninger, you spoke with Dan Seeger, the Undersecretary of Environmental Affairs in Massachusetts. Uh, Let's hear what he had to say about TCI. I would say that the other, you know, sort of challenge to it is um, across states in the region, you have various populations from very dense urban populations to very rural agricultural populations and everything across the board. And I think, you know, we're really committed to making sure that that we have a program um, that that takes into consideration the impacts that it's going to have on on all various demographics. And I think that that's those those have been, you know, the the challenges that we've heard, but also a lot of the focus of the work that we've been doing. So, so what about this question of equity and fair impact? 
Yeah, that's a big question. And uh, officials in Massachusetts say that this has been a big talking point. They've been uh, over the last several months doing different listening tours around the states. I think, you know, what's interesting with TCI, you have all these different states and you're looking at a region that has a, a mix, right, of urban, rural. And so there is a lot of concern about a policy potentially having a disproportionate impact, um, you know, on rural communities or, um, you know, concerns about uh, where the revenue from this policy would go towards. If there's a lot of money being raised from rural environments, will it only go to support urban transportation systems? So this is a big question and, and talking point that uh, state officials here have been grappling with. And it's something that uh, I, I think we'll, we'll hopefully see some more details around in this next round uh, with, with the states coming together uh, to create some sort of memorandum of understanding that we're expecting this month. So when that memorandum of understanding comes out and goes for public comment and then is finalized, uh, states will get to decide individually whether to implement it, like John mentioned. Uh, And in some states, including here in New Hampshire and Vermont, officials have sort of stayed in the planning process, but not fully committed to adopting the final product once it comes out. John, why is that? Well, uh, here's Governor, our Governor Phil Scott talking about that and uh, his opposition, long-term opposition to any broad-based taxes. We want to learn more uh, about the initiative. I think that we have to be objective uh, about this. Um, but my feelings haven't changed uh, on a carbon tax. Uh, and if this is all it is, is a carbon tax, then um, I'm, I'm not supportive of that. So we have Governor Phil Scott, you know, he's got people at the table. He's got uh, substantial staff resources dedicated to this. The Deputy Secretary of Natural Resources, somebody from our energy office. Um, but he's, he's, he's withholding judgment on, on, on the implementation phase, so to speak. He definitely is interested in lowering greenhouse gas emissions uh, region-wide, but he doesn't want to have Vermont consumers um, pay a lot more. And, and in particular, he doesn't want to, you know, um, a tax in, in Vermont, and, and I don't think this would happen under the TCI framework, and not one just across the river in New Hampshire. We'll leave it there for now. John Dillon is the environmental reporter for Vermont Public Radio, and Zeninjor and Mameka is a reporter at WBUR's Bostonomics team. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. This month, the Northeast states will put out a draft memorandum of understanding, which is basically a template bill that each state can then decide on adopting during their legislative sessions next year. It should be finalized by the spring. Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island have committed to implementing the Transportation and Climate Initiative in their states. Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine have been part of the planning process, but haven't committed yet. So we've talked about the sector that emits the most greenhouse gases, transportation, and how it's struggled to trim its emissions. Now we're going to turn to the sector that has the second highest emissions. That's the energy sector, how your heat and electricity are produced. Energy has been much better at trimming its carbon emissions. That's partly because it's heavily regulated and centralized. Many states, including in New England, are aggressively trying to add energy that emits zero carbon to their fuel mix. Natural gas has become more popular, and it emits less carbon than coal and oil. 
Zero-emission renewables are on the rise, too, and policy changes have helped, like the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which makes power plants buy permission to emit carbon over certain limits and reinvest the money in other energy solutions. All that change hasn't come easily, but some potential solutions are more controversial than others. One idea that's often debated, especially in northern New England, is biomass, getting energy from burning wood. I recently worked on a series about this here at New Hampshire Public Radio with my colleague Daniela Alley, reporter covering western New Hampshire. She reported on a biomass issue at Dartmouth College, and she's here to tell us more. Hi, Daniela. Welcome to Next. Hi, Annie. So how did this story uh, get on your radar in the Upper Valley? So in January of this year, Dartmouth proposed um, a new heating plant, and it was a $200 million project, so it included a new heating plant, and they would be changing their distribution system, so changing from hot water to steam, and the source of the heat would come from wood chips. So that was the plan. They proposed it in January. Um, They would said, you know, the wood's going to come from a 50-mile radius. It'll be locally sourced, benefit the local economy. We won't be burning our fuel oil anymore, which they burn about close to 4 million gallons of every year to heat heat campus. Okay. And so there was some pushback to this project. What, what are some of the cons people bring up when it comes to biomass generally? Yeah, so some of the cons and this, some of the stuff we heard from neighbors was, um, you know, there are particulates in the air from when the wood is burned, and those are little microscopic particles that can get lodged in your lungs. Um, there might be more traffic in the area. Um, and also, I think some people were generally wondering, is this really a renewable source of energy? Because that's kind of what Dartmouth was positing this as, is we're moving away from fossil fuels. We're trying to reduce our emissions. This is a local way that we can do that, is not burning fuel, but burning wood chips that just come from um, harvesting, you know, saw logs. We'll just use the tree limbs and the branches and all this other stuff, and that'll be better environmentally. Yeah, and people would say in this era of climate change, we shouldn't cut down any trees, right? And so so where did Dartmouth kind of land on that? Right. So in September, they actually decided to reconsider um, using wood chips to heat campus and building a whole new heating facility to do that. And some of that came from pushback from the public. Um, and, and earlier in the summer, they'd also gotten a letter from three alums who are scientists, and they were like, hey, we don't think you should build this plant because of the timeline we have with climate change. And then this IPCC report came out about land use. That's the UN panel on climate change. Yes, thank you. Um, And that, I think, really turned the tide for them. You know, Rosie Kerr is the director of sustainability, and she was telling me, you know, if I'm reading this as, like, we have 10 years to act really urgently to maybe you know, change the tide here. Uh, So maybe biomass isn't the best option given that timeline. And so she felt that there was a sense of urgency. Other people at Dartmouth felt there was a sense of urgency that maybe they should take time to reconsider given what the science is saying about what we need to do. Yeah. And so given that, I was really surprised in your story that one of those alumni you mentioned, Bill Schlesinger, he's a professor emeritus now at Duke University, actually recommended that Dartmouth continue burning oil instead of switching to biomass. How does that make sense? Correct. So 
that's kind of a two-parter. So he's saying, let's make the campus as efficient as possible. Let's invest in energy efficiency. Let's, you know, seal up all these very old buildings. Let's do all of that. And you're going to be using less oil over time and then just wait until there's a source of energy to heat campus that doesn't involve burning something. So he was kind of just like, let's batten down the hatches now and do this and then wait until maybe something comes along where we don't have to cut down trees to to supply the fuel that we need. Yeah. So it was the sense of urgency thing, really, that, you know, maybe if we had a longer timeline to address climate change, that this would be a different conversation. Right. And that's something that I asked him because I was, you know, fossil fuels are millions of years old. And so wouldn't it make sense to just maybe take something that's 30 years old? Right. The carbon in the trees is like current carbon that we've generated in this lifetime as opposed to fossil fuels. Right. And so that was kind of my pushback a little bit on on his his proposition. He was like, well, you know, if if our timeline wasn't 10 years or 20, you know, to make these changes, but instead we had like 100 years still to do something about climate, then I would maybe consider burning wood chips as as an option, but we just don't have that timeline, is what he was saying. So one other thing, I think a question that stood out is, as, you know, Dartmouth's plan is being reconsidered, biomass generally in New Hampshire is having a real tough time, what, what other possibilities exist for for these, you know, these wood chips or these other low-grade markets, like what what other poss- what else is out there for people to do? That's what we're going to hear about next in the story I did as part of the series. We'll leave it there uh, for now with Daniela. Thanks so much for talking with me, Daniela. Thanks, Annie. Daniela Ali is a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. You know those alternate markets for wood chips Daniela just mentioned. New Hampshire has long sold those wood scraps to be burned for energy. But now, after subsidy plans failed, most of the state's half dozen or so small biomass power plants have gone idle or scaled down operations. This means the forest products sector has fewer in-state markets where it can sell those wood scraps. Our story starts in western New Hampshire, in the town of Orford, where tree farmer Tom Thompson owns a thousand acres of forest on the side of Mount Cube. His property borders the Appalachian Trail, and when I visited, it was in full October splendor. That's a perfect spot to try to find a a moose in, and the colors are just about perfect right there. A gravel trail for hikers and snowmobiles snakes through the forest, past bogs, ponds, and mountain overlooks. But make no mistake, this is a working forest. Thompson, the son of former Governor Meldrum Thompson, bought it more than 30 years ago from a paper company. They were moving overseas, leaving mostly low-value, unhealthy trees behind. Thompson says restoring this forest into a healthy ecosystem involved routine harvesting of all kinds of wood. When you plant vegetables in your garden and you just walked away from them, you'd be lucky if they produced hardly at all. And that's exactly the way it happens in our forest. Landowners like Thompson say healthy forest management means clearing dead or broken trees and limbs to let better timber grow. In New Hampshire, that so-called junk wood makes up about two-thirds of the volume harvested and contributes about 10 percent of the revenue. That's not much, but folks like Thompson say it's vital to keeping forests profitable and intact. Thompson was left with a lot of junk wood after the region's catastrophic ice storm in 1998. He's been having it harvested ever since, but right now he can't get any loggers to come in. And would that be different if the biomass plants were healthier? Oh, yeah. 
If, I mean, if, if we had the biomass plants up and running, there wouldn't be any issue. The biomass plants are six small wood chip burning power plants that were built across the state in the 80s during an era of oil embargoes and political interest in energy independence. Thompson says the plants were the ideal local market for millions of tons of junk wood over the years. Folks went out and mortgaged everything they had to get into that industry. And, you know, now we're, we're faced with, uh, you know, what do they do with it? Watch your step on this. Across the state border in Orono, Maine, university researchers are looking at just that question. A decade ago, Maine's timber and construction industries were hit hard by the recession. But since then, the state's government and its timber and economic advocates have focused heavily on attracting federal and private money to develop new products using wood and wood scraps. This is always kind of interesting to look at. This particle board is 100% wood. No formaldehyde, no glue. Ben Herzog is a wood technologist at the University of Maine's Advanced Structures and Composites Center. Researchers here developing new kinds of wood building materials, like particle board held together with an adhesive that itself is made from wood. This cuts down on the toxic chemicals used to make traditional particle board. Another product is called mass timber, thick, strong wood panels made out of layers of lumber and sometimes wood chips. It's seen as a climate and city-friendly alternative to steel and concrete. New Hampshire's first mass timber building is currently going up on the seacoast. So that's mass timber. Yep, yep. What else you got? <laughs> well, we got all kinds of stuff. Shane O'Neill, the school's forest industry business development manager, is a busy guy. UMaine is working with the military to make blast-resistant shelters and portable bridges out of wood. They're combining wood with plastic to make more durable docks and decking. They're crafting huge wind turbine blades out of balsa wood from overseas. They're even developing a chemical process to turn wood chips into crude oil. Then there's the cellulose, a wood pulp so fine that researchers say its uses are almost endless. Wood cellulose can feed 3D printers or make insulation. It can thicken paints and food, make car parts and cell phone screens. It could even be used in medicine to create synthetic bones and nerves. Colleen Walker heads the UMaine Center focused on nanocellulose and says it's a serious potential alternative to plastic. We like to emphasize that it is nature made. <laughs> I just like to say it's always, always been there, but we've just learned how to extract it and really manipulate it because there wasn't really a, the, the tool set available in the scientific community to look at the nanoscale before. It's interesting you use the phrase like nature made. Yeah. It was always there because that does bring to mind fossil fuels for me. So yes. How is this preferable? Because it's renewable. That's the biggest environmental argument for making all these products with scraps of wood that would otherwise stay in the forest. They can offset the use of industrial materials like plastic, concrete, and steel that do more to drive global warming. And most of these wood products continue to hold in their carbon, while the forest they come from regrows, doubling their benefit. New Hampshire's Economic Affairs Commissioner Taylor Caswell says that this kind of innovation holds promise for the state's timber sector. There is a growing need for technology in that industry and the workforce development as well. So all those pieces really flow together, and I do think there's a regional aspect here that we're hoping to be able to really take advantage of. He thinks the state will be able to benefit from innovation happening in Maine, and he points to that mass timber building on the seacoast as an example of what's already going on in New Hampshire. But New Hampshire's wood markets are still dominated by the classics. Saw logs, pulp and paper, wood pellets for home heating, firewood, and still some biomass. 
And even if new wood businesses do eventually take root in the state, or if regional developments create new markets where New Hampshire can sell its wood, it's not likely to happen for years. Wood market consultant Eric Kingsley is worried the changes won't come fast enough. He says the loss of the biomass plants doesn't just jeopardize around 1,000 biomass jobs. It could devastate the state's timber supply chain, loggers, truckers, equipment retailers, and more. It's going to disappear before it has a chance to be done. So we're certainly going to see a loss of harvesting infrastructure that would have, will have to be rebuilt when new markets are identified. Tom Thompson, the tree farmer, hopes it doesn't come to that. He thinks the state can and should have two priorities at once, building new markets and sustaining its biomass industry. We have the, uh, the renewable resource. We just need the markets. I mean, landowners need the markets. If they don't have the markets, they can't, they're not going to hold on to their land. Instead, he says landowners could sell for other uses. Housing developments sell towers. This could leave the state with smaller, more fragmented forests, more vulnerable to further development. It would mean fewer benefits for wildlife, recreation, and the climate. After the break, a New England jazz composer offers an African-American musical portrait that spans 400 years. I'm Annie Ropeek. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Historians still debate when it was that groups of Africans were first taken by Europeans and brought against their will to the Americas. But many say it happened in 1619, making this the 400th anniversary of the start of slavery in the U.S., Bass player and jazz composer Avery Sharp has taken this significant number and written what he calls an African-American musical portrait. Sharp lives in western Massachusetts and has played over the decades with McCoy Tyner and Wynton Marsalis, among others. New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman has the story. When Avery Sharp first started talking about writing the soundtrack to history, he saw it as a puzzle. In coming up with the concept, how do I fit 400 years into 60 minutes worth of music. Sharp broke the centuries into eras, two or three songs each, starting with the year 1619 and the arrival of 20 Africans to coastal Virginia, moving into this piece called Is There a Way Home? Sharp's composition includes 10 pieces and takes creative leaps through time. You know, I'm kind of going back and forth between the idiom of what was happening then and the idiom of just me creating something to express that particular period. Like the colonial and antebellum periods. (laughs) 
By the time Sharp reaches this piece, Fiddler, it's after the War of 1812. In the South, cotton is the crop. Abolitionists have begun their crusades to end slavery. The Civil War is coming. The first part of Fiddler is quasi-classical, Sharp says. Even though America had broken from England, that we're still this sophistication or class thing, you know, if you listen to European classical music. And many times if you had a, another craft that you could do as a musician, you might be called upon to play for the plantation owner. A few minutes in, the fiddler takes a turn. Slaves also made a lot of original music, and, Sharp says, their owners might even have liked it. In the history of American culture, Africans and African Americans often were and are the musicians making the popular music of the day, getting credit or not. Ragtime, the music of the Harlem Renaissance, the blues. Sharp's writing is influenced by what and who he knows in history and family. I'm writing for my ancestors' experience. I'm writing for my, my own personal experience as well. That experience includes his father's service in the Air Force during World War II. Sharp remembers hearing how hard it was to return home to the openly, violently racist South. By the time the Vietnam War arrived, Sharp's family, seven kids and his parents, had left Georgia and made their way to Springfield, Massachusetts, with the civil rights movement in full swing. And for this era, Sharp reworked a well-known piece. I started writing things, depicting that, that era, and everything I, I kind of came up with me, to me sounded corny. And so I said, well, let me just take a song that's already from that era and just do an arrangement of it. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I'm gonna keep on walking, keep on talking. Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around is among the African-American spirituals Sharp grew up learning in the storefront churches he and most of his family attended almost every day of the week. His mother was the church piano player, and many of the Sharps ended up being musical. The voices you hear are collectively the extended family choir, which includes his sister Wanda Rivera, conducted by his brother Kevin Sharp, and another family member helped bring this traditional song up to date. Can you imagine 400 years of your history, 400 years of you? So I asked my niece, Sophia Rivera, to uh, come up with a spoken word. I kind of told her the subjects that I wanted to cover, and then she, she took it from there. America, land I love, country that despises me in one breath and praises me in the next. I am black. I am American. I will not be dismayed. I will not retreat. I will not back down. I will kneel. I will stand. I will march. I will vote. I will run for office. Never backward. 
As 400 wraps up, Sharp gives listeners another 100 years to think about. When I did 500, that was more of a positive thing, you know, to see that I have faith in America, that, that we'll do the right thing. America has been through a lot, Sharp says, and it would be interesting to know what happens between now and 2119. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. Find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. And you can follow Next on Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. We had help this week from Emily Quirk, Peter Angish, Mike LeClaire, and Corey Princell. Music this week is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. I'm Annie Ropeek. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio. Thank you.